Check one, sibilance. Hey, this is Stomp, just real briefly. Ty Gagney, thank you so much for coming in and chatting with Mike and I about your books, Where You'll Find Me, The Last Traverse, and your shorter essays, Emotional Rescue, and Weakness in Numbers. It was a great what four-hour deep dive just awesome ty was gracious enough to bring several signed copies of these books as well as specialized note cards with a, a message on them and he also wants to donate a virtual book chat to a lucky listener as well so please listen to the end of this episode because the details are all in there about how these raffles are going to work the main purpose here is to donate money to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council. This is the nonprofit in New Hampshire that really supports volunteer search and rescue teams statewide. So, again, take a listen and uh, let's donate to the Outdoor Council. Alrighty, enjoy the episode. Broadcasting from the Woodpecker Studio in the Live Free or Die state of New Hampshire. Welcome to the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast, where we discuss all things related to hiking and search and rescue in the White Mountains of New Hampshire, occasionally including the counties of Belknap, I mean, Belknap, um, something like that, and Coos Coos, wait. Or is it Coas County? Whatever. Here are your hosts, Mike and Stump. The barbarians are uh, storming the gate. Daphne's outside the door, literally headbanging the door, trying to get in here. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> no, did I, did I read? Did, did, I thought I read on the script that Ty's allergic. Yeah. So we'll, this will be fun to watch me deteriorate over two hours. And for your oh, audience. very nice. Yeah. I'm rolling too. It's all gonna be fun. All right, Stomp. Do you want to want uh, tilt your camera up a little bit so I can see Ty? I just I can see sort of like when my grandmother used to take photos. You'd cut the top of the heads off, but there we go. All right, Stomp. So um, I guess for the show opener here, I'm just looking at the notes. So we're starting with the creepy promotional photo that you sent over. Um, the reason why we don't do video is because. Not only do I not look good, but you look extra not good. So I don't know what you were doing with that that weird black and white photo. He's talking to me, right? Yeah. <laughs> it was. Uh, I think I was inspired by that uh, Beatles documentary on Netflix. Have you seen that? Not yet. Get back. No. It's, it's, Peter Jackson's amazing. Yeah. He really is. So I was I was trying to do a uh, with the Beatles ripoff. If you're familiar with that album, it's a black and white silhouette album. I'm like, okay, let's give it a shot for a little promo. <laughs> I sent I sent that to all my kids and my wife, and they were just like, uh, "You both look super creepy." And I was just like, "Oh, I never want to see my face on a, on a promo video again or picture." Have you seen The Alpinist? I have not. Oh, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I've seen the the preview for it. Yeah, it's I it's it's unbelievable. You gotta watch it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. he's a, he's a free soloist, right? He was. Yeah. He was. Yeah, he, he died. He, oh my god, I didn't yeah. know that. But he he didn't he wasn't yeah. solo when he. When he perished. Oh wow! Interesting. Yeah. Well, that's next on the list. Yeah, it's so good. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. I just watched that um, like two nights ago, but unfortunately, I, I f it's really good, and I shouldn't have fallen asleep. But I was just exhausted because yeah. it was just a crazy day. But um, I did. I woke up like right as at the end of it, and uh, so I missed a little bit of it. But I want to go back and watch it. It's tough. It's it's a tough watch. 
It's sort of like I always think, you know, when when Alex Arnold had that that other movie out, I just kept thinking like that's going to happen to him eventually. But I think maybe with his life changes and meeting his girlfriend, his tolerance for risk has yeah. gone gone down a little bit. I don't know. Yeah, so far. Or gone. <laughs> yeah. Who knows what he has planned? <laughs> yeah. But. Yeah, exactly. But Stomp, the other thing I wanted to ask you with the show opener so that I don't forget is you had, and I've gotten this question from a couple of people, as a matter of fact, because I think there's like a shortage of Christmas trees in in the area where I live, but you went and got a permit and was able to cut down a Christmas tree up in New Hampshire. Is that is that right? It was great. Yeah, five bucks. And uh, my wife and I went out. It took us a couple of days. We went to a few locations and... Um, there was, there was just nothing. So I ended up going on Google Earth and found some really nice spots to check out. And uh, they have some regulations. You know, you're supposed to be about 100 feet off the road or trailhead. And um, at the at chest height, which would vary for individuals, it has to be six-inch diameter, which is interesting. So I noticed as on my commute to Grafton County um, nursing home there that Lost River had a ton of trees. So it was a beautiful spot. So I went hiking in and yeah, worked out great. It's a nice uh, option. I mean, the reason I looked into it was because of this um, backup in the uh, delivery system here, mm. you know? So some places like local farms weren't receiving trees and whatnot. So, you know, it's a nice resource for us. Have you ever done that, Ty? Oh, yeah. As a, as a kid, my family and... Our extended family would go out into the woods, and I'm not convinced it was legal, but is it being recorded right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, we're not. We'll delete this part. (laughs) It was, you know, but that was a long time ago. That's funny. (laughs) So, yeah. Oh, you saw the tree up there. It's like a 15-foot tree. Yeah, it's awesome. So, um, from our second-floor bedroom, you can see the star, and that, that was a show for sure because I was on the top of a six foot ladder with a six foot broom trying to get this topper on top I should have put it on before I elevated the thing but lesson learned <laughs> yeah does Mrs. Stomp do the thing that my wife does where like you'll put I think we've, we switched to an angel at this point but we had to start but like you'll get it up there and then you'll get what come down from the ladder and then she immediately is like well it's a little bit crooked you need to fix it oh sure absolutely yeah. that's what they're supposed yeah. to do <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. So, but I'll have, um, I, I will put the link on the rules from the, I think you had sent it to me, Stomp, about like the, the rules for, from the Forest Service around how to get the the permit and what the what the, the rules are as far as what you can cut down. Because I think that's a pretty cool thing to do mm-hmm. with at least one time. Like I have a fake tree now because I just don't deal with the, the, the real trees anymore, but it's, it's worth it to, to do it. And do you need to be a New Hampshire resident or can you be a masshole to do it? It did not ask that during the um, purchase process online. So I think you can just sign in and get your permit. Okay. Yeah. Good to know. All right. So next up, before we get to our show opener, is cat news. Everybody wants to know uh, what the Daphne situation is. Well, in terms of what? Like, <laughs> is, is Daphne in the <laughs> no, room? No, no she's, she's blocked out. Uh, out of respect for our guest. I feel um, bad. No, it's okay. It's like, but no, seriously, she's headbutting the door. So you, I think she's calmed down a bit, but we'll we'll let her in towards the end, and uh, hopefully okay. Ty will take a little selfie with her. <laughs> We're going to start a wall of selfies with Daphne. Yeah, she's a sweetie, cool. but she's just she's one years old, so she's just high energy. 
Good luck, Tom. Yeah, Hopefully you'll survive yeah, no down kidding. there. That, that uh, stomp is basically a crazy cat lady, so <laughs> you're in for a long afternoon. Um, so, Stomp, listener questions you have here that we, we get a couple of questions. Yeah, a couple here. Um, first of all, this one's for you, Mike. What's your take on the hiking buddies? I figured you could answer that one quick. So we had the hiking buddies on. And matter of fact, this will be a good topic to bring up with with Ty as well while he's here. But I think that um, people are going to get together regardless. I think that they serve a good purpose. Um, you know, we had Ben on, so you can definitely listen to, I'll forget, I forget the episode number, but I'll link it. Um, the people that I hear that are not a fan of the group or these, these type of groups say that, you know, there's no controls, that um, people are splitting up and that um, it's not, not, a, not a safe way to meet people. My view is that there's going to be an increase in demand in hiking for the foreseeable future um, with social media. And I think overall, there hasn't been any issues with the hiking buddy groups. And I think overall, I'd rather have a resource for people to be able to connect and communicate about their you know, their interest. And I think that we can cover a little bit of this with Ty and, uh, you know, we'll talk about this later on in the show, but I think the theme that you want to focus on when you're doing any sort of meetup groups is to go into it with the intent that you're going to be very clear about what your physical capabilities are, what your interests are, and the fact that you plan to stick with the group the entire time. Well said. I mean, it's complicated. I mean, as you, as listeners will see, the, the group dynamic is an interesting topic, and we'll dive deep into this. Any comments on that, or you, were you distracted with the mic? No, I, I have plenty to talk about with my own experience with uh, two other hikers who I didn't know. So Yeah, let's save it for that segment, because yeah. we, we do a deep dive on that uh, essay of yours. Yep. Can someone teach Mike that an SUV is not an ATV? Yeah, I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, I know the difference. <laughs> Okay, there you have it. <laughs> Short and sweet. I'm not sure what that means either. Yeah, It's got to be some reference that must have happened. And then th- th- this one's, I guess, for anybody. But um, this person writes, I would love to hear your thoughts on Leave No Trace philosophy, more specifically bushwhacking. I feel as though I've been trained to stay on trail since I was a kid, but I'm also intrigued by the idea of bushwhacking. I've had plenty of times that I've bushwhacked my way as a result of being lost behind my house. (laughs) Not good, but never have set out to do this. Thank you. Um, My thought on it, I I put a lot of thought into this actually because it's a really interesting topic. Um, I think you can make the argument that there's more trail damage being done by the volume of people on the trails. Like for instance, up on Falling Waters, the switchbacks are almost non-existent Mm -hmm. now because people are just beelining straight up to save time or distance or whatever. And I would say that if you're an experienced bushwhacker, the, the, first of all, the percentage of people bushwhacking is minute compared to the, the people that are on the trails, in my opinion. So the people that are really out there bushwhacking are generally pretty educated about um, just care, foot placement, and things like that. And you're following herd paths a lot of the time, which are basically trails that the animals are using. So you're really not doing anything um, out of the ordinary or against those uh, leave no trace ethics or rules, in my opinion. 
Yeah, I mean, I've heard that, and I've seen that on social media before, where people will utilize "leave no trace" as a explanation for not doing bushwhacking. But I think the rules of "leave no trace" say something about making sure that you're traveling on firm ground or something. I don't know the details. We'll have to get a "leave no trace" expert on here, but ultimately, you're right. Like the, these, you know, avoiding mud puddles on existing trails probably has a lot more damage than somebody that's doing the, the 500 highest and going off and, and bushwhacking. So I, I think that it's a it's a gray area. I do think that if you are bushwhacking, like you do want to stay on firm ground and not go through, you know, fragile uh, vegetation and things like that. But I, I don't do enough bushwhacking to know how prevalent that is. But I mean, even the chances of you coming over the same train twice is infinitely impossible you know when you're bushwhacking you're not doing the same route twice you know it's so i just think that the risk of damage is pretty minimal if if any at all yeah yeah agreed lots of questions let's dive into some white mountains history shall we I did a little bit of research. So last week we talked about Darby Field, who had ascended Mount Washington, I think in like 1640 or something like that, 1648. And the fact that there wasn't a lot of activity that was documented between that period and when the Crawford settled Crawford Notch um, in like the early 1800s. So I did do a little bit of research and, you know, I've got a bunch of books here that I was flipping through. And I think the one sort of expedition that stands out to me was sometime in like the later 1700s. Um, Jeremiah Belknap, or Belknap, I always pronounce that wrong, and um, Reverend um, Manessa Cutler. So this is the guy I'm assuming is named after the Cutler River drainage. They did do an expedition on up to Mount Washington and the presidentials in the late 1700s. So was a little bit more activity going on. And then I think this is a pretty well-documented expedition. So I'll do a little bit more research on it. And at some point, there's a couple of historians that we um, we want to reach out to to get some some more of a deeper dive into these early expeditions up to the presidential. So we'll work on that. We have a couple donations here um, just to move along. Um, okay. We have, <laughs> her new name is H-less Sarah, Sarah without an H. So it's H-less Sarah down, uh, donated three coffees. Um, okay. Chris donated five and Fisomo donated a coffee. Thank you very much. A special thank you to our sponsor, Reckless Brewing, where you'll enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4,000 footers, and less than 10 minutes from the five corners. Visit them online at RecklessBrewing.com. R-E-K-L-I-S Brewing.com. Want to transition to the show summary here, Snob? Yeah, sounds good. All right. So tonight we are joined by writer Ty Gagne. He is the author of the books Where You'll Find Me, Risk Decisions in the Last Climb of Kate Matrasova. And he also has written the book The Last Traverse, Tragedy and Resilience in the Winter Whites. In addition to his long-form writing, Ty has written some shorter-form essays, including Footprints in the Snow Leads to an Emotional Rescue, which tells the story of local SAR team member Pam Bales and is the basis of the upcoming film starring Naomi Watts called Infinite Storm. Ty will share some of his thoughts on New Hampshire Search and Rescue, 
general hiking safety, and we'll probably be peppering him with a bunch of questions about his writing. So we're very excited to have Ty joining us. I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. All right. Very good. So um, before we get into talking with Ty, do we have any beer discussion here, Stomp? You got any drinking anything? <laughs> no, it's a Java, Java day. It's 11.30 it's a, in the morning. I got a nice coffee. For God's sakes, if I was drinking beer, that'd be bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Ty, usually we'll have a beer and we, we have a little segment where we talk about like what we're drinking, but. Oh, did you make it to that coffee shop, Ty? Yeah, Mad River Coffee House. And I was pretty psyched to stop there, get a coffee, and I'll be taking a few bags home. So, Oh, I think that's great. Yeah, support Mad River Coffee. Ah, they're great. Right they at, uh, what is it, exit 28, right off the exit. Great coffee shop. How about you, Mike? Yeah, I'll have to check them out. You're drinking some whiskey? Um, I just have like the, my wife gets the Starbucks iced coffee in the refrigerator, so I'll usually have like an afternoon coffee, but I'll be... A little shaky and quivery, I think, uh, later on today. I know. I'm jacked up right now. I was like, no. Nah. <laughs> Too much. All right. Any uh, any recent hike stomp that you want to go over with us? Yeah, sure. I, I You know, I love this area. Have you hiked over to um, the the newfound area, Ty? No. It's really neat because you, you have Tenny Mountain, which has all those uh, windmills on top. So that's north to south. And then just behind that, you have Bald Peak. And uh, Mount Crosby, which is part of the Cockermouth Forest. And it's just a beautiful place. I mean, it's one of those places you can go to where there are no people. And uh, you get these really stunning views. You can actually see from Mount Musalak all the way east to Chikora. And you can see Mount Washington on the horizon. It's an amazing spot. So that was uh, my most recent adventure. And I did Tenny before it started snowing. That was fun, too. So I'm just sort of uh, revisiting some old haunts. How about you, Mike? So, Tenny is that that's the mountain that has, like, if you're on the Musalaki Highway and you go past the polar caves and, and you see those windmills, that's that's Mount Tenny? Yeah. Yeah. So, you oh, have okay. to go, when you hit the rotary on Tenny Mountain Drive, you drive south maybe five miles. Uh, that's Tenny. Um, it's a neat place. Those windmills are massive, by the way, when you get under those things. They're huge. Got to be at least 100 feet high. Um, incredible. Yeah, no, I've never been over there. I'll I'll check it out. But I did get out on um, Sunday. I drove up to the Ferncroft parking lot, which is the trailhead where you can typically everybody accesses Whiteface and Paso Conway from there. But I took the other direction and I did a six-mile loop of Mount Hibbard. So I recently completed the 52 with a view, but I have a few of the delisted peaks that I need to hike out to. So Hibbard, Hibbard was on the list. So I went up Old Mast, I think is the name of the trail. And then from there, I think it's called the Warden Trail. And I climbed, I think that sub peak is called Hedgehog, but it's not the Hedgehog that's on the 52 with a view. It's the Wanalasset version of Hedgehog Mountain. And then over to Hibbard, and then over Wanna Lancet. So it's a six mile loop, six and a half mile loop, and it was beautiful. There's like, there's no views on the peaks of any of those mountains, but there's a, a few side trails where you get some really nice views out to the east. You can see Chikora, and then into that research forest below um, Whiteface, you can look out to Sandwich Dome and Mortgage and Percival, Morgan and Percival. So it's really a great hike. Um, I didn't see a single person, so it was Sunday. Notice the theme and, here, Ty. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the goal is that, you know, the, the oh, le- less people we see, the better. Um, 
I did actually. I saw my my friend Dolores about a mile towards the end. So I was almost done, and I she was coming up. And Dolores is the one had, that had told us she had given the feedback previously that I had seemed distracted sometimes during the podcast. Yep. Okay. So I was I was laughing, but um, <laughs> she was giving me some tips on yoga because I was telling her that when I had to put on my micro spikes to. Um, <laughs> To start climbing up, I almost threw my shoulder and my back out because I have no flexibility. So it's <laughs> pretty sad. <laughs> yeah, it is. You gotta get out of that basement. <laughs> That's what you gotta do. Yeah. It's time for Slasher's Guest of the Week. Very cool. Very cool. Let's transition into um, peppering Ty with a bunch of questions here. So, Ty, <laughs> just to give you some background. Myself and Stomp, we've been talking about putting this podcast together for like two, three years, and we actually were just talking and talking and talking and never actually doing anything about it. And I had started, I had started a Facebook group to sort of discuss search and rescue incidents that came up. And to be honest with you, it was sort of started from the perspective of. Um, being very judgmental about search and rescue. And over time, it's transitioned into much more of a, we just want to get information out and we want to be, you know, not push judgment on on people, but to educate. And I think watching your sort of impact on the hiking community with the books that you've written um, really has inspired myself and Stomp to realize that like there is definitely an audience that is interested in this and that it's valuable information and the amount of search and rescue activity that we see year over year is pretty consistent still so we haven't seen any sort of impact as far as as the numbers dropping but it's held steady pretty much and I think there's been a growth in overall hiking activity. So my perspective is, is maybe we're making an impact with um, getting the message out. I know that your books have a much wider audience than we do, but you know, you've inspired us to um, try to get some sort of a, a message out to people. So we're excited to have you join us. And, you know, I guess from there we can, you know, if you want to just transition into introducing yourself and, and we'll take it from there. Sure. Well, thank you both for the invitation to be here and congratulations on the podcast. I think it's it's great that you're focusing on education and, and raising awareness, particularly through this medium, uh, which a lot of people are drawn to. Um, my name's Ty. I uh, was born in New Hampshire. I've never left. Um, and I've currently work in risk management and I really have tried to blend that work that I do professionally with um, the things that I write about and I'm psyched to get peppered by questions today. (laughs) This is the most prep I've ever done for a show. (laughs) I've been at it all week. (laughs) But it's been fascinating. You better not screw it up. um, So Ty, the... I guess start from the beginning. Can you talk a little bit about like, were you a hiker growing up? Did your family expose you to it or did you pick it up like later on in life? Yeah. So going back to your point about uh, Percival and, um, you know, I cut my teeth along with many people from this area on Rattlesnake Mountain in near Squam Lake and the Ridge Pole Trail. Uh, and then all of those, you know, the classic elementary school field trips, you know, to Chikorua, to Musilak. Um, I, I still have, trauma over the Musilak hike just because of the um, the story of Dr. Benton they told the night before. Oh, you got that story, huh? Uh-huh. We talked about that during the uh, Halloween yeah. episode. Did you? Oh, long, yeah. Long-lasting effect. Isn't that me. funny? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. 
Uh, and then from there, I really, um, my elementary school industrial arts teacher took me rock climbing in between my fifth and sixth grade summer, absolutely fell in love with it. Um, and through his mentorship um, and wisdom, because he's he's just one of the, he's one of the nicest people, but really one of the best climbers I've ever been around, uh, progressed into ice and alpine routes and and then, yeah, and so that's kind of my story. Great. And do you get? Do you still get out and hike a lot now? Not, not right now. I'm I'm mostly talking about hiking and climbing with people, uh, and that's okay because I think those conversations. Uh, I think to your point about raising awareness I, are important. And if that's where my focus is right now, I'm I'm okay with that. But I I will you know I do miss high places for sure. Okay. And then with a background in risk management, um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, your, your career in risk management and then how did you transition into writing the, the books? Well, I was in public safety for a little over a decade, many, many years ago. So I, you know, I was a first responder and as you know, um, stop first response is, is a lot of that is about the managing of risk. So mm-hmm. I think that, you know, my passion for local government and just having been kind of raised in that um, discipline transition nicely into the work I'm doing now um, where we provide risk management consulting and, and claims work and, and that and HR consultation and that kind of thing for school, municipal and county governments throughout New Hampshire. The writing um, goes way, way back. I think, you know, I wrote a column for a local, our local newspaper. Um, my mother saved all of those newspaper clippings. Otherwise, I may have forgotten about those. But yeah, I think I was around 10 years old. I really enjoyed writing uh, in elementary, middle school, and high school. And I think part of that was just because I was really, I was really shy. Uh, I didn't have a lot of self-confidence and I would spend a lot of time in my own head. When you do that, I think that's where a lot of creativity comes from is that, you know, that those times when we're in our own head and we're thinking about things. And, and um, so I think that's really kind of the early origins of the writing. Uh, and then, the, you know, it was fits and starts. I never really put a lot of focus on it. You know, I went to undergrad into grad school and there's a ton of writing in both. And I was really drawn to that. Great. And then as far as the connection with search and rescue, so you were involved in public safety and aware of that, but did you, have you always been interested in search and rescue or was that something that you picked up um, relatively recently? Yeah, I didn't know it existed until I read Not Without Peril in my early 20s. And, you know, Mike Pelchat, Rick Wilcox, um, all of the names that we sometimes see in publications and in news stories. And I was really, I took a really strong interest in that. Uh, I, you know, at one point I went to a mountain rescue service meeting and they were getting, they were in the process of uh, purchasing portable radios for the team members. Uh, And I had, I had some experience in that. And uh, actually my climbing partner was on MRS at the time. And I can remember just uh, standing in that room, just talking to them about digital technology and portable radios and as they were pondering that. So it was probably my first contact with with search and rescue and had a tremendous amount of respect for, 
for MRS wasn't really familiar with the other teams, which at that point there, there really were not a lot of other teams in the state as, as there are now. So I've always been drawn to mountaineering literature, stories like that out of the wild, um, out of remote places. And, uh, and that interest in search and rescues has always kind of stayed with me. Got it. And then I, I talked a little bit about this in the, in the opener, but like I used to, it, not to say it was amusing, but I always used to just sort of say, you know, I'm interested in search and rescue, but I, that would never happen to me because of X, Y, and Z. But has your view as far as, you know, people's behavior and looking at incidents changed over time? Or have you always been able, because I feel like you, you sort of take a very ju- non-judgmental approach to it. And, you know, you talk about like what could be done to, um, to improve the safety approach in certain situations. But can you talk a little bit about, I guess, how your view of human behavior when it comes to search and rescue has evolved over time? Yeah, I, I think it's been pretty consistent. I've, whenever I've read, you know, an, a newspaper article or I've seen a media report, or again, I'll go back to not without peril, probably multiple times throughout our conversation. It wasn't, I wasn't looking through a lens of judgment. I was really interested and fascinated with, well, how did that happen? And what was it like to be in that situation? I think what's probably evolved over time is where I saw the opportunity to use that approach, hoping that maybe a reader would take something away from the way I presented the information that would help them, whether that person was a hiker or not. Um, And I think that's one of the, been one of the most meaningful parts of all of this is the number of people I've come into contact with and have been able to talk with about these things that uh, whether a hiker or somebody that works at sea level or a high school student or covers all the bases, I think. Got it. And then with the, with the, with the initial proposal for the book, did you have a sense that there was a market uh, and, and a strong interest in this this topic, or were you just looking at this as this is going to be a passion project for me, and if it sells, it sells, and if it doesn't, it's it's just something that I think is important to, to get out to the public? Yeah, I think, well, I think to go back to your previous question about judgment and then move on to that, the book, you know, I I have yet to meet anyone, and I put myself in this bucket, that has lived an error-free life. And yeah. if we think about, you know, our school age years, we're, we're learning about things that have happened as a result of trial and error, as a result of risk-taking decisions, and many times as a result of tragedy and failure, sadly. And over time, um, and we when we start to have our own experiences and we start to apply those lessons, I do think there's this point that we can come to where we think we we possess total knowledge over a subject matter and this would never as you said this would never happen to me and we get judgy. Um and I think when that happens we, we stop learning at a certain we we're not open to new information and we're not open to exploring the why's and what I can take away because maybe maybe we've had perfection in the mountains, right? And we've never had anything go wrong. But if you if you broaden that lens, I'm sure there's something in our lives that we can look back at and say, through that series of decisions I made, 
this thing totally got away from me. Uh, but when we judge, I think we're part of that, I think is self-preservation and we're trying to distance ourselves from our own stuff and it's easier to focus on what everyone else did wrong. Um, as far as the book goes, I, you know, I had no idea the response that would happen. It didn't start out as a book project. It was never my intention to write where you'll find me. Um, it, that started out as a presentation that I put together for work for public entities throughout New Hampshire, looking at accidents in the White Mountains as a metaphor as to, you know, what can we take away from those that would help us on day to day at work or outside of work. Um, and that's where it started. And when I did this presentation back in May of 2015, I thought I was only doing it once. I, I didn't think it would go anywhere. Uh, but I was uh, invited by a member of the audience at that session to present to a group of school superintendents from throughout New Hampshire in the fall and decided that um, I would just focus on the story of Kate Matrasova and, and the rescuers. So I worked through the summer, get, gathered more information, um, did the presentation in the fall, thought it, that was it, and was invited to speak to PEMI Search and Rescue at one of their uh, monthly meetings. And from there, I think it just kind of, it snowballed. Great. And what's the, what was the writing process like for you? Do you, did you just do it all in, in like a, a quick burst or did you need to do it over time and write like a couple of hundred words a day? How, how does that work? Yeah. Well, both the process for each book was different. Uh, and there were, there were reasons why the second book had a different process that I'll talk about. With the first book, you know, I had been out talking about this for a little a little over a year and a half. And at each presentation that I would do, I would get a question that I didn't have the answer to. And I would go out and I would try to get the answer to that question to be prepared for the next time I was I would do it. And over time, just more and more information and data accumulated. Um you know, I did a presentation for the fishing game command staff on the accident, uh, gleaned more information from that. I did a presentation at Gunstock Ski Area for um, they're under the auspices of Belknap County. And every year they hire back their entire staff and they do a safety day. And I met the Blackhawk helicopter pilot from the Matrasova mission, who was also on ski patrol part time at Gunstock. And was able to glean more information from him. So when I got ready to write the book, I had a lot of the information already and a lot of it was already formatted in my head just from talking about it so much. And so I, I started writing, um, you know, the, my publisher is also the, he initially did the illustrations for the presentation that I did before the book. And he has okay. a very small publishing house and I approached him Want it. I'm ready to try to write this. Here's what I want to accomplish. And he signed on. Uh, there was no advance. There's no marketing arm. I went out on my own at my own expense and hired an editor and a proofreader. Um, but really spent about six months writing that book um, while still going out and, and doing some interviewing here and there to, to close loops. Um, but I would get up at four four in the morning or so I'd write for three hours and get ready for work, commute to work, would come home at night um, 
and I would get the materials that I planned to write about the next morning all set uh, and ready to go so that when I was back in the seat early morning, um, I was ready to ready to write. And then on weekends, obviously, there was some longer, longer efforts. You see, you have to have a passion for this to you're doing this sort of outside of your normal work hours and getting up early and doing it. So, um, stop it. Sounds like us. We have a passion for the podcast. So, Ty's <laughs> been very passionate about his writing piece here. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, you need to have a passion for these creative endeavors for sure. Um, we talked to a few different guests about the creative process and uh, refinement and editing and stuff like that. And it's similar across all these different genres, whether it be art or audio or writing. And it's really, you got to love it. You got to dive in. You know, I've dabbled with audio production and I'll put in hundreds of hours on one song, constantly refining. I'm sure you do that too with text. Um, It's, it's a lot of work, but yeah, you got to love it. And I do love it. I can't, it's, I don't really know how to explain it, but just the research yeah. I, I love the research side of it. Mm. Uh, I love talking with subject matter experts. Mm-hmm. And um, and then I, what I also just really like to do in, in, in as authentic a way as possible is how can, how can I put the reader there? Um, and I, right. and I'm, I'm not saying I'm ever going to get to that point, but I, I really do put a lot of effort and focus on that mm. part of it. Yeah. I don't, typically enjoy writing, but I enjoy the, the challenge of trying to do what you just said. And I had a question about that, actually. I, I was wondering if some of your descriptive uh, moments are from maybe just common experience that people, you assume that people would experience, or from your life. Like, for instance, the, uh, the bully wind up on Franconia Ridge. Or there was another one that was fantastic where, you know, uh, the mylar whipping like a you know drum like yeah a, yeah does that come from you being a musician or just like common observations or the only musical instrument i can play is the recorder which i learned in fourth grade so i can't i love music though don't get me wrong i love music um yeah i i think it it those things come from life experiences and you know i've been bullied on Franconia Ridge by the wind. I oh, sure. Know yeah. what you, I, you know what strong wind feels like and you know what it sounds like as it moves through terrain and as it moves past past you mm. and your gear. So, um, yeah, I think it's, I try to draw from the past yeah. and, and the things I've been through. Yeah, well done. Oh, thank you. Yeah, and Ty, picking projects, I'm assuming over time you've, had, you've been approached, especially since the your first book, and you've probably been approached about a number of different topics, and I'm assuming you've probably passed on on doing a number of projects. Do you have like a criteria where you'll just say, "Yeah, this this doesn't feel right to me," or, or do you are you able to sort of describe how you how you pick and choose your projects? Yeah, I appreciate that question. I as for where you'll find me, real again, that evolved out of a out of an educational program and. That story really resonated with me for for many reasons. Um, the prologue to the book, Full Conditions, originally started as an essay that I wrote for Appalachia called Weakness in Numbers about an experience I had on Franconia Ridge, which ultimately led to the book, The Last Traverse. There's a tie in there. Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, I've been approached and I've, I've really appreciated that and been humbled by those things. I am... I am selective about the stories and in some ways there's a 
well, I, I didn't know the people at the time. I mean, you do have somewhat of a, you have that connect, it connects with you. It moves you. And that's the direction I get drawn in and drawn toward. Um, and I'm also just really, really mindful of the fact that there are uh, people that are directly impacted by these accidents there, whether it's the victim um, or the family. And if, if the family or the victim is not um, open to talking about these things and, and, and having me write about them, I, I won't do it. I mean, I, I, I've, I make that very clear to the people I sit down with that if you're, if you're not comfortable with this and comfortable might be the wrong word, uh, but that I'll walk away. Uh, and I, I'll, I'll just share with you. I, I had one that I looked into, um, and, the the individual directly involved was not uh didn't didn't want to didn't want to go there and i i turned my back on it and 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 said okay i'm you will you will not see me writing about this um outside of here this is where it stops god and i think it makes sense too because ultimately you're you're trying to learn from it from these incidents and and pass that knowledge on and if somebody is not willing or they're going to be traumatized by it then it's probably best to to leave it yeah that's just the the principle i've followed through this whole this whole path got it got it well i think you you had mentioned your um you know weakness in numbers so uh, I think we should probably transition into talking about that stomp. And I think you, you were going to take this segment to kind of dive into um, this point. I, I, and I could tee it up a little bit. Basically, you know, there's this sense that I, I think when you talk to people about hiking that maybe aren't as familiar about hiking, like a lot of times I'll get questions because I do solo hiking and I solo hike in the winter and I solo hike, you know, pretty big miles in the summertime quite a bit and stomp you do as well. And I think most people on the surface would assume that the biggest risk situation you can put yourself in is as a solo hiker. But the reality is, is I think that we find that a lot of the search and rescue incidents that, that happen in the whites are a result of, um, no, not a result, but they're, they're in the involvement of group hikes. So we want to talk a little bit about, you know, what some of those things are that we want to be aware of when we are in a group, because it's not as simple as, as people would assume that you've, you know, you've got three or four people to strengthen numbers and everyone's going to stay safe. So we'll stop if you want to transition into this segment. And you're not going to hurt my feelings. So huh. be direct. <laughs> <laughs> And I would well, I've hiked with Stomp a few times too, so yeah. we'll, we'll probably be able to share some of our stories. Oh, sure. So I would encourage the listeners to um, to read these essays on their own. I mean, there's no way that we could dive into this stuff to such great detail, but um, we'd like to ask guests if they've had any close calls uh, up on the ridge. And this essay that you wrote, Weakness in Numbers, essentially is your close call, or maybe one of several, who knows, but... Um, I'll just briefly give people an idea what it is. It's it's Ty's uh, explanation of how he met up with two hikers that were fairly skilled, and it was in February of 2008, and they were the plan was to go up over uh, Franconia Ridge, and it just was sort of an off day, right, Ty? More or less, just like the red flags. You talk yeah. about red flags a lot. Yeah, and I I you know I it's I can look back on this now, and I'm really I'm really transparent about it. I think the first two red flags for me was accepting the invitation to go 
mm-hmm. with people I didn't know. Um, and that I, my level of physical fitness for what I signed on for was not where it needed to be that winter. Um, and yeah, it was a, it was a bad day. Uh, and I, but I learned, I have no regrets and I've learned so much from it. Yeah, absolutely. So the idea of the piece is to essentially posit that, um, well, you come right out of the gate and you say a group is not safer just because it's a group. So, yeah, I was generating as much risk as part of this trio than had I been alone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what I try to to talk with people about when I'm giving these talks is because there's some there are people that are critical about solo hikers. There's a lot of focus on the risks and the irresponsibility of going solo. Mm -hmm. Um, And what I try to explain uh, is that. Again, I was part of a a trio here, um, and had I been by myself, uh, or had I been with my my climbing partner, I think the day would have unfolded either not at all, I, yeah. w- I wouldn't have gone, or it would have been a lot a lot different. And you're touching on familiarity with your your partner, perhaps trust building and things like that. In the art, in the essay, you talk about uh, this doctor, Michael Roberto, uh, three conditions that can impact a group's behavior and decision making. Do you want to touch upon those factors? Yeah. So team psychological safety, um, there's three components to it, leader coaching and support. There's familiarity and prior interactions. Mm-hmm. And you've got me on the third. Maybe oh, have I have it right notes. here. Uh, prior interaction, member status. Member differences. status differences. So right. thank you. Sure. So I think I... I very clearly planted myself in the guest category on that hike. Mm. And I, I behaved as if I, I was a guest, which is, you know, you're there, you're present, but you're not um, doing anything that's going to cause your hosts to be disappointed. Mm. Um, And I've explained, I've learned so much from this that, you know, I look back at, I was in, I think I was 40 years old or so when that happened. Mm. And I'm reminded of the teenager and the, middle school student that I was and similar behaviors, you know, just um, not speaking up, not bringing my voice to something, following along, wanting to be liked, wanting to be accepted. And, Mm. and I think those are very human traits and um, in all of us. And, and it just depends on the situation as to how, how prominent it becomes. Yeah. And you touch upon, I think you, you source other uh, writers about this, but you touch upon the fact that, for a really uh, for a group to be really successful, you have to have that psychological safety. Is that the yeah. term? So the ability to speak up. Yeah. So I think when those three things are present, when when the leader of the group, whether it's informal or it's it's quite obvious and structured, uh, approaches the work of the group uh, as wanting the group to have a have support and a good experience and not autocratic, uh, and that team members feel that that this leader has, you know, is looking out for their best interest, uh, has their safety and well-being and, and success in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the more that we interact with one another, the, the more trust is built, the more opportunity there is for candor. Mm-hmm. And the the more we downplay uh, authority, power, tenure, expertise, and only really leverage that when it's absolutely necessary, uh, that's those status differences within that group are diminished. And really what happens is when you have those three components in place and we move to team learning behavior. 
mm-hmm. and the team is open to learning, building experience, um, expertise, wisdom. Um, they can be candid with one another uh, in a respectful way, mm-hmm. um, and it really it minimizes risks. But it also because I'm I yes I come from risk management. I don't come from this place of we shouldn't take risks. I think there's I think some degree of risk taking is really critical to I our own development. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, it's necessary. Yep. Uh, pushing the boundary a little bit to learn and to to see what you're capable of and then to backtrack and or scale back if you have to. Yeah, that's actually one of my questions. So, yeah. Yeah, and I so I think just to to finish my thought because sure. I will definitely lose it um, is that uh, <laughs> So on the flip side, it minimizes risk, but it also positions the group to maybe assume more risk than normal because there's that high level of trust. There's that openness. If something starts to go wrong or somebody feels uncomfortable, somebody in this group I'm confident is going to speak up because we have that that cohesion. I think my takeaway then listening to this, Ty, is that... You, you're going to have group dynamics no matter what. Like if you have a situation where somebody is more experienced, that's just the reality of, of what the group dynamics are going to be. But it sounds to me like one of the things you can do is if you recognize that maybe you're not like in a position of perceived weakness, you want to make sure that all of the group members are clear that you know you're not positioning yourself as the the leader or above them and you want to make sure that you're communicating early and often around the fact that you know we're all equals and that you know people should be quick to speak up if they're not comfortable with what's going on during the hike yeah and i think it's also important for the person in a leadership role to project humility, uh, you know, genuine humility. And, and that might mean taking ownership of um, in front of the group of something that either went wrong in real time or an experience that that person had in the past that, again, got away from them as things just get away from any of us. And I think that helps to build confidence in, in, the, in the leader. And I think it really contributes to that sense of trust we can have with each other um, hey, if that if this person who's guiding us or we're following had this happen, it I, I appreciate that person sharing it. Mm-hmm. So here's a hypothetical. So assume you're on this hike, and your assumed leader were, were one of these two individuals, and you felt as though they were they rightly there as leader for that particular trip. First off, it was so informal. It was okay. Yeah. I, I read that the, he, the, you know, one of the people would come back and check on you. You were yep. a bit behind, which is great. What would happen if one of those two individuals broke that assumption of yours and um, and failed or made a bad decision? Or what what happens when a leader just walks you right into a bad situation? Well, I, you know, I think we see it happen in the mountains, and I think we see it happen in organizations and within social groups. Um, I don't know what would have happened. I don't hold my two hiking companions responsible at all. Mm. Um, I I take complete ownership for what happened. And here's a just a story, side story to the whole thing that just talks about how small this state is. When I wrote Weaknesses in Numbers, which was w- well before the book mm. uh, or any thought of writing the book, you know, I changed the names of the people that I went with and... Um, when the book came out, I did a, 
a book talk over in Tamworth at the library. And one of the, one of the individuals was present there for the book talk and knew by this time. And I hadn't seen, this was 10 years later. <laughs> this, this is how conflict in, in, in the Granite State works. But this was, ten, I hadn't seen this person in 10 years. Um, and here we are 10 years, February, 2018, 10 years after this happens. And by then he was well aware that it was the, it was this experience that he was involved with, with me. And, and he, he said, I had no idea you were in that much trouble. And he, I could tell he, you know, he was wearing that concern. And I said, it's not, it wasn't your fault. I didn't tell you I was in trouble and I, and I should have. And, and I've had some pushback from people over the years as I've shared that story. Well, they, you know, they should have known, but you know, stop, you get up in full conditions. Mm-hmm. You, it's in some ways, you know, you've got your balaclava on, your goggles are on, your hood's over, you can't hear anything. You're in your, there's a, there is some, um, you're kind of on your own in, mm-hmm. in a certain, to a certain degree. We were all getting tossed around that ridge that day. You know, they were, they were, getting bullied as probably as much as I was. It's just my (laughs) physical fitness was so pathetic that I think it just, I was so much more taxed, Hmm. uh, which contributed to my really poor performance that day. Yeah. How do you think this applies to uh, the hiking buddies, Mike? Well, I think it's just uh, there's people that organize. So the Hiking Buddies is a meetup group that um, is on social media. And anybody can basically post a hike and say, I'm going on this hike. And people self-select in based on, okay, I'm a slow hiker. This is going to be a fast pace or whatever. And I think that the people that are – I think primarily I would say the people that are organizing the hikes – need to sort of take some of the advice that Ty's talking about around, like if you are a leader and you are a perceived strong hiker, just make sure that everybody is aware of the fact that, you know, we're going to stick together as a group. I'm going to check in on people, make sure that they're okay and be humble about it and be like, look, you know, it's not that I'm questioning your ability, but you know, we've never hiked before. I want everyone to have fun. That's really the goal of the activity is to have fun and not to be you know, grinding, you know, if you want, if you do want to go out and do a 25 mile hike or a crazy Pemi loop, then I guess that's a different dynamic. But for the most part, the goal of being out there is to have fun and to stay safe. Right. But in terms of um, how, how does a leader establish themselves within one of these events? I'm not picking on them in particular, but just these large social media events that are popping up everywhere. Well, I think one thing, and, and I hosted a, a hiking buddy, I think one of the things is avoid large groups. Put a limit on it and say, like, I'm, I'm only going to host four or five people. Because when you get in these large groups, that's that gets a little crazy. But I think I can only tell you how I handled it. And what I said to the the, the three people that joined me is I said, look, I'm going to navigate. We went down the um, Lincoln Slide and we bushwhacked out to Owl's Head. So it wasn't like a, it was a tough hike. And I said to them, look, it's going to be a difficult hike. There's going to be, you know, a lot of loose Footing coming down the slide, we're going to be doing some bushwhacking, um, and I'll lead for the most part until we get to Owl's Head. And I think the dynamic worked out well. We all had the same pace. We kind of stayed together. I was actually probably the weakest physical hiker in that group, so it kind of turned out well. As I knew where I was going, but I didn't have the physical skills of the other hikers, and I just continue to check in on people to say like look if you're if you're not if if you're not feeling well we can skip owl's head slide and we'll just go right out so i think people just need to 
keep everybody's safety in mind. Okay, yeah, but so you were the de facto default leader. That's what I'm getting at. It's like, yeah, well, it's just so arbitrary and random. So you're walking into potentially a hornet's nest, I guess, with these trips, right? Yeah, I think the point I wanted to make is I'm not on social media. So I'm a, I'm familiar with this and I'm only familiar with the, the buddy hikes because a really good friend of mine uh, does that. And I think the good thing that's spun out of that is the initial group that he participated with now they just they all they go out together all the time so it's it's generally the same group Mm. i I think the thing i would would want to be mindful of if i'm involved in that is i might be perceived as the leader just based on the fact that i posted the hike and so i think you you just want to ask yourself that question of there's a there's the potential that I'm going to become the default leader. Mm-hmm. Do I want that? Am I able to take on that role? Because one of the first things that may need to happen at the trailhead at the meetup is to identify who that person should be or whether it's going to be collective. Uh, but just to be, it's just something to be mindful of. Yeah, it's really perception is really yeah. powerful. Yeah, and as the leader, I got us all lost. Once once we exited the drainage, I, I, I proceeded to get us lost almost immediately. So, um, but I, I was honest and said, like, yeah, well, listen, we're going to have to navigate a little bit. I don't really know where we are. So, and nobody panicked. So, it worked out okay. I'm not really feeling the pressure stop on the, the my ridge traverse. So, <laughs> from me, yeah, I, I, I thought <laughs> I thought there was going to be more oh. <laughs> uh, more pressure applied for my decisions, but. No, I mean, I well, I think it's probably because I've been there. Mike's yeah. been there. We've all been there. And I guess it's one thing to read it. It's another thing to live it. And it's such a subjective experience to some sense. You know what I mean? Uh, so, yeah, no, no judgment right. on my end. Okay. Maybe you know what I mean? Listeners will have questions or comments at the end. I think you'd have to read it. And yeah. Yeah, and Ty, your your point about um, your friend who found his people, I think that's the ultimate goal is I like to hike solo. I have no problem doing it, but I also have, you know, I hike with Stomp and a a few of our core friends, and then I have another friend of mine, Tom, who I hike with, and we don't hike at the same pace, so there's been a little bit of tension occasionally around the fact that, you know, he's a bit slower than I am on hikes, but... The reason I like to hike with Tom is that I know with a hundred percent certainty that if one of us is not feeling it or we need to make a critical decision, that we're both going to be on the same page and there's not going to be any judgment. So for me, even though we don't align from a speed perspective all the time, that finding that that group that I have absolute trust in is 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 more important to me than aligning our hiking pace together. So has that tension been acknowledged? And discussed, or is it under? Is it buried under a couple of layers of interpersonal? No, dynamics? It, it's discussed out in the field, yeah. and then we don't really bring it up too much outside of. Um, you know, I think Tom will bring it up and say, like, "Look, I don't know if you if you don't want to hike with me because I'm too slow." You know, let me know. And I'm my perspective is always that I would rather. You know, it, it's more enjoyable for me to hike with him. And on a, a three-day through hike, a, a section hike of the AT is usually usually when these things pop up. If it's just a day hike, then it doesn't really matter. So, but we have discussed it, and we're, I'll bring it up in the car ride. We're going hiking <laughs> on good. Friday, so we'll talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, and Ty, and if you're t- asking me, like in terms of like my search and rescue mind or something, 
um, I think you were prepared, right? I mean, absolutely prepared. But the, the one thing that comes to my mind is when you started getting leg cramps. Like for me, that is terrifying. Yeah. Oh I, my God. It's, I mean, there were so many times I wanted to turn around. Uh, for, you know, when I woke up that morning and I, and I took a photograph that day, which is, it's out there. I think it's, um, and I looked outside and I could hear the wind buffeting the house. I lived at the time I lived about 25 minutes, 30 minutes South of there. I didn't, I didn't want to go. Um, I'm like, I've, I hadn't done the traverse before in the winter. I'd been on Lafayette in storms before I was comfortable, but guess who I was with? Um, I was with my normal climbing partner Hmm. and, but I didn't want to go. I just, my ego would not allow me to pick up the phone to call one of them to say, today's not the day for me. I mean, I, one of the reasons you want to get up there is for the views. There were, there were going to be no views that day. Um, so then the next default is, well, get up there for the challenge. And, you know, I got more than what I bargained for. But I can think of numerous times where I knew what the right answer was. Mm. And I, I just couldn't bring myself to disrupt their day out. Again, I had myself in that guest status. I didn't perceive that I had any less experience. Um, it's just, it was, it's, it was my own stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's, it's even worse on the Ridge too, because I'm, th- if I remember the story correctly, you came up from a little bridal. So the second you decide to ascend down Lafayette and you get to, you get to a point of no return where it's like six of one, half dozen of the mm-hmm. other going back or moving forward. And then you've got a whole like mile and a half where you just, you're inside your own head being like, oh, I should have made this decision or that decision. And you, you've got to live with that for, what is it, like two, two and a half hours yeah. of fun yeah. hiking. And I didn't, you know, I was de- I was dehydrated. I wasn't focused on self-care. You descend off Lafayette and you're like, okay, this thing's almost over. I, I didn't have a grasp of the terrain across the ridge because I hadn't been there only from what I've seen, but you couldn't see the ridge at all. So I had no perception of where the finish line was. And I can remember starting up Lafayette, I mean, starting up Lincoln and saying, I, Oh my gosh, this is, this is not good. When is this going to end? And even when you drop down the other side of Lincoln, there's still these rolling, this this rolling terrain in certain spots that don't seem like a big deal if you're in shape and hydrated, uh, but when you're not, it's they feel just as steep as everything else you've done that day. So, <laughs> right. um, it was I, I suffered. I mean, I and it was a grind to get out of it. But again, as I said earlier, I don't regret it because I, you know, it's a frame of reference for me, and we all have those frame of references. I can. I can be in a situation now, whether it's at work or personally, or I go back to that and say, okay, this is tough right now. Is, is it as tough as what it was like on that ridge? And what, what did I do to get through that? Because I can get through this. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, I think there's some value in, in suffering in certain cases. I think it builds resilience and it obviously adds a lot of perspective to your life. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, and I think we'll talk about like the the need or the importance of local knowledge and having an idea of what the scale is of the the area you're hiking. Because my opinion is that it's a lot easier to make those calls to turn around when you've been there, done that, and it's very very difficult to do it if you haven't. Um, so we'll probably talk about that a little bit when we cover Kate. But um, Stomp, I think you were going to talk a little bit about how these group concepts might relate to SAR team members and when, when you're on missions and things like that. Right. Actually, to a larger larger degree, I wanted to talk or get your take on how group dynamics work between the search and rescue agencies in New Hampshire. Say, okay, you have all the volunteer teams underneath Fish and Game. Every team has a different culture underneath. I can certainly say for PEMI and MRS and everything else. So just wanted to see if you've seen it or experienced any uh, issues with that dynamic with Fish and Game being at the top or if there's a time that you know for a team to mature and actually step up and actually usurp the lead position of fishing game at times or i mean how does that work with all these different teams yeah now stomp you're you're at the tip of that spear so if i if i talk out of school or if i say something that isn't accurate please call me out on it um you know my sense is there's there's a lot of humility within these groups uh i'm not gonna i mean any group is going to have um, some of those dynamics we've already talked about, but mm-hmm. I think, I think there's a recognition between fishing game and the volunteer teams that one really can't be successful without the other, mm-hmm. and that there's gratitude there. That um, fishing game knows it's a it's a 17 member roughly team um, that they can't possibly do this on their own. There are situations that come up in the mountains that require a particular area of expertise, whether it's local knowledge of terrain and routes or whether the conditions are just such that it, you know, you have to, there's a certain amount of technical competency that you have to devote to that particular area or accident. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's a, um, I, I, again, I think it's it's collaborative. It's cooperative. I'm not going to say there aren't tensions and disagreements, but they work through those. Yeah. They have a SAR working group that meets once a month uh, where, you know, representatives from each team and fishing game meet and they talk about accidents and incidents and they work through that stuff so that the next time there is one, um, they've already had that conversation. I also think that I mean, in, in terms of fishing game, you know, Jim Nealand, who I'm, I'm sure you know, he's the team leader of that. And he just does such a good job. And mm-hmm. ego doesn't get brought into these things. And I think he just does a really nice job of um, working with the other teams and and deferring yeah. on, on situations and uh, that where that extra expertise is needed. So I don't know. Have if you, you seen any other situations in, a say, a different context where there were issues with this type of structure well it's such a unique structure it is right i mean and i think one of the reasons i am so thankful to be able to share these stories is because we should be really proud of search and rescue in new hampshire that yeah not only fishing game but the the volunteer teams that exist and the fact that they will just stop whatever they are doing um to go out and help fellow hikers or even searches that um, need augmentation in, in urban um, or, or rural areas, not in, uh, not in the mountains. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to compare it to anything else I've seen because it's, it's almost like it doesn't, 
<laughs> at some in some ways it doesn't exist elsewhere i mean yeah. it's it's so unique and it's real it's special to 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 see it and i'm sure for you i don't want to speak for you but it's got to be pretty rewarding to be in a, a part of that community mm-hmm. yeah yeah, it's and it's interesting when I and again I'm not on search and rescue, but Stomp, when you did the the breakdown in one of our early episodes, the thing that strikes me about the way that it's structured is that it's a really very decentralized, very distributed um, across the state. And I think the more I see of what needs to happen when a rescue situation starts it makes sense is that you can't you know we think of law enforcement as sort of these centralized structures where um, everybody sort of coordinates out of one area and, and goes out to where the problems are but the way that it's structured in New Hampshire is that it's it is decentralized but it's that way because from a geographic perspective you need to be able to apply a high volume of people to respond to an incident quickly and that's really the only way that you can you can have it set up to be effective I think Unless you have a small geography. Yeah, I don't think the trust and relationships that exist within SAR were, they certainly weren't built overnight. I mean, I think if you talk, you talk with Rick Wilcox, who was one of the founders of Mountain Rescue Service, you know, initially, because Fishing Game has had that long, long term oversight, um, it was, it was law enforcement and climbers coming together and groups that you wouldn't necessarily expect to come together. And he said, you know, early on there were issues between Mm -hmm. the two groups uh, because that they can look through different lenses, but all of that's been worked on for, and a lot of focus and energy is put on it um, outside of rescue operations. And I think we see the results of that just in the the work that they do and how effective these teams are at, um, at helping people. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned the work group. The work group is fantastic. It's uh, community building, and um, it just provides so much insight into what the other teams are experiencing and just working out issues. And uh, then, of course, we have the New Hampshire Outdoor Council above all that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's an amazing uh, structure here in New Hampshire. Great essay. I think I do have some questions that I'll bring up later during the uh, discussion on Last Traverse in terms of leadership and whatnot. So I think we can move on, Mike, if you want to. Well, before we move on, Ty, I just want to give you one um, side story around group dynamics where Stomp did not um, sort of speak up when he was in a, a bad situation. And you know, I thought it would be an interesting little side story. So we covered this story previously, but um, I met up with Stomp probably about two, three years ago on 4th of July weekend, and we were doing a PEMI loop with a third friend of ours who, um, he's a guide for Redline um, guides. And so the three of us set off to do a PEMI loop from Lincoln Woods, and at the time, Stomp decided he was going to bring his bear spray with him. Um, So he had it in his pocket, and very early on in the hike, the bear spray exploded into his pant leg. And... He, you know, I said to him, I was like, that's going to cause a problem. And he was like, no, it's no big deal. It was four miles in. So (laughs) four miles in. So we proceed to, you know, I think we got past Bond Cliff and then we're going up to, um, we're, we're, we're hiking the misery that is Garfield Ridge Trail up to Garfield. And I look down and I see Stomp and the, the, the bear spray had just bled into his leg and he didn't say anything to us. We had to say to him, I I took, you know, my hands and rubbed my eyes. So it was on my eyes and my face. And (laughs) 
could. Yeah. And he refused to like show any level of weakness. So like we, and so I finally just sort of had said, let's talk about this. Like you're hurting bad. And I think ever since then that kind of broke the ice where anytime I'm hiking with stomp, like I have no problem just calling him out and saying like, are you okay? But Well, and don't let him bring um, chemicals on hikes, right? Yes, exactly. So what caused you to not bring that forward as I'm sure it started to impact you? You know, honestly, it, it was subtle at first, mm-hmm. but then we were in the bonds and it would start to kick in. It was melding with my sweat and my body chemistry. And then from there, it just, we were committed and physically I was still moving. So it actually became this weird event where I could, I was so focused on it that I was just, you know, taken away from the misery of the hike or the challenge of the hike in a sense. It was almost this weird hmm. paradox, but uh, whew, yeah. That was a lot of fun. <laughs> yeah, it was. But I mean, we could have bailed out. Like I, but I didn't even ask you. I was sort of like taking the perspective that oh, that's his problem and he'll be fine. And it, it wasn't until we we kind of stopped for a little while and I took a good look at him. He's not a good looking guy to begin with, but he looked extra ugly that day. And I, I remember saying to him like, "Do we have to stop or do we need to put water?" It's it's easy to say those things when you're remote. Mike. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I'm sitting here in the room with him. So, yes. <laughs> Not really yeah. fair. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, you failed in your leadership duty that day, Mike. You just. I apologize. You didn't see the red flag and you just carried me into my doom. <laughs> no, he's, he's exaggerating. It actually wasn't that bad, but I don't know. It was pretty bad. Anyway, um, Ty, the other thing I will say I appreciate is as, a, you know, calling out in risk management that you're somebody that, um, you know, believes that we should be focusing on risk. I, I deal with um, some some of our risk management and safety people in, in work. And a lot of times, like I always joke to say the position for risk management is that, you know, accept no risk. <laughs> so it's nice to, to hear. Yeah. I And I, I understand where that comes from. And um, yeah. but I really, I believe that it, you can, there's a way to go about assuming risk, um, and the benefits that can come from that. So I'm not really, a absolutely no, you can't do this kind of person. I mean, I think it's, how do we figure out whether it's feasible and what needs to happen for, for that to take place? Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So I think uh, we want to transition into talking a little bit about um, where you'll find me in the story of um, Kate Matastrova. Um, I think I was talking to Stomp about this a little bit, Ty. You did a deep dive with the Warden's Watch podcast. So my recommendation for anybody that's interested in this story is obviously to read the book. Um, but also to listen to the Warden's Watch podcast for a really detailed summary of it. So I don't think we're going to get into all the nuances um, of of the story, but just at a very high level. Um, do you want to just sort of give us a breakdown of the the the, the story of Kate and 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 a little bit about what uh, what occurred that day? Yeah, and I think it's important to to talk about the fact that you know this happened on over February 15th and 16th, 2015. But the story, I think, starts way before that. And I, one, of the, one of the reasons I, like, I, I tell these stories is because, again, I think we can get judgmental. And it's just having a recognition that uh, we all have a, 
a much larger story beyond that one incident that can ultimately define us just based on the way people can react to it. But uh, Kate, um, she came over to the United States when she was around 20 years old on a work-study visa uh, from Omsk, Siberia. And over the course of um, a decade, maybe just a little more than that, leading up to the accident, she she learned the English language, taught taught herself that, worked part-time to earn money to, to go to community college, went to community college, was accepted into four-year degree program at DePaul, uh, went on to get a master's degree from UCAL Berkeley, a really highly competitive graduate cohort in financial engineering, worked for the third largest bank on Wall Street, and over the course of that time, really fell in love with mountaineering and had summited you know, some pretty significant peaks throughout the world. You know, arrived at uh, in the presidential range February 2015 to train uh, to build some experience and resilience toward uh, completing the Seven Summit Challenge. She had done four of the seven, had been guided on each of those expeditions, and I talk a little bit about that in the book. Ultimately, chose to solo hike. I originally, didn't want to go solo that day. Uh, but could not get anyone to go with her um, and elected to go out on this Sunday of President's Day weekend and felt that was she was, uh, was aware of the weather event, um, had checked the Higher Summit's forecast, knew that it was going to get really cold and windy through the course of the afternoon, felt that she would move fast enough because she was packing for light and fast that she would get across that range mm. uh, quickly and would, would be able to generate body heat and stay warm and ward off that cold and that by the time the winds ramped up uh, and visibility dropped that that Kate would be below tree line and ammo uh, ravine that's not how it played out Uh, over the course of the morning you know the weather ramped up it really showed its teeth Uh, Kate was out above tree line from 8.50 in the morning uh, when she first broke tree line near Madison Hut to when, you know, we know when she activated her emergency locator beacon at 315. So that there was a long time to be out there exposed to that kind of weather. You know, wind chills 30 plus below zero, winds gusting to 70 plus. Uh, there was a weather dynamic that had um, come down from the north, northeast, that Arctic, those Arctic fronts that drop out of Canada. It's referred to as bombogenesis. And, um, and, and Kate got caught in that and made the right decision to turn around uh, and bail. But that decision, it just came way too late. Uh, And so any thought of self-rescue really wasn't realistic um, or being rescued, frankly, uh, because of the remoteness of where she was. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then that takes you into the story of the, the search and rescue team members that responded and were activated to uh, to try to go and, and you know rescue Kate and you know the book really covers in a lot of detail some of the challenges decisions and heroics of of those search and rescue team members um, which which really I think from my perspective inspired me to really become even more interested in, in search and rescue and and try to learn exactly like what lessons could be learned from this situation and, and other situations but I think there is one thing Ty, I wanted to ask you about is like any if you ask like nine out of ten people about this situation 
they will say like, oh, yeah, this was her first time in the Whites and she didn't know the area. Um, but she had previously hiked in the Whites before this 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 event, correct? Kate had come up uh, to do reconnaissance on that route the month before over Martin Luther King weekend uh, with her husband, Charlie, knowing that she would be coming back solo a month later. Uh, they made it as far as they summited Madison, uh, stayed overnight near Madison at Madison tent site. Um, Kate really wanted to go get Adams the next morning. It was about a mile from where they were, as you know. Uh, Charlie felt that the weather was starting to turn and also had had a, a difficult go of it. The day before going up Madison, they had packed for heavy and slow. You know, he overheated. He was very tired and he felt that, um, you know, going up Adams was going to be even more difficult um, and just, um, and you know, and Kate acquiesced and they broke down camp and descended Valley Way knowing that um, she would return a month later. Got it. So she had a little bit of familiarity with the region. A yeah, a little. It, the familiarity really stops at Madison Call. Got it. Yeah. And then, of course, with no visibility and, and crazy weather conditions, it becomes even more difficult. Yeah, it was, it was a brutal conditions. And as you said, I think that that book is there is as much about the search and rescue operation uh, as as there is about the the accident and, and what led up to it. Yeah, and I and I I'm curious. I think you know, and I I would have to refresh my memory, and I think you probably talk about this in the the Warden's Watch um, podcast as well. But I think the search and rescue teams probably went above and beyond as far as acceptable risk in trying to execute those searches. Um, can, can you talk a little bit about like, were, were there lessons learned from the, the search and rescue teams? And, and do you feel like some of those team members came away and said that like, you know, we really went beyond where we should have to, to do this, this rescue event? Yeah, I think with any operation of that scope, um, there's, there's always going to be lessons learned. And I, I think there were some lessons learned. And again, I think a lot of that was debriefed at at the working group level in talking with the rescuers, none of them to a person felt that they were outside of their, their abilities uh, or their experience level. Uh, and that's just in their conversations that they had with me. But I think, you know, if you watch, there's some video footage of it. it, it the, the, the conditions were, were certainly extreme. And I know that, you know, the, particularly the operation the night before after the beacon was activated was it was incredibly cold um, and rescuers had trouble lighting stoves and were running up and down the trails and doing jumping jacks trying to stay warm the mountain rescue t service team that moved toward the location of the second beacon activation uh, chest deep snow um, post holing all it was just a grueling and I talked to the wife of one of the rescuers involved in that and you know she recalls her husband just coming home and just shivering uncontrollably from that mission because it was just so incredibly cold. In the the beacon situation, I think that's another topic that that comes up quite a bit. There was a lot of different um, locations that were pinged on the beacon. We talked a little bit about um, the effectiveness of beacons with Colonel Ninnis of the Civil Air Control uh, Patrol when we did an episode there, but. 
I think having a beacon and safety devices is is important, especially if you're going to be doing solo activities in risky weather. But is there any were there any changes with the technology or or any lessons learned when it comes to the effectiveness of beacons in in these situations? Yeah, I think the beacon that Kate was carrying um, performed to standard and actually performed better than what that those minimum standards are. I think what happened is when when Kate put the beacon back into her backpack and left her backpack on the ground, which is you, that is, that is common hypothermia behavior to discard gear. Um, that backpack is on the ground. The faceplate of that beacon really needs to be pointed skyward. The antenna needs to be extended skyward. And that didn't have, once it got on the ground and is moving around a little bit, that's where the, all of the signal propagation took place. Also at the time in 2015, there were low Earth orbit, Earth orbit satellites and high Earth orbit satellites. Um, at the time, medium Earth orbit satellites hadn't yet been deployed. Um, and so those are much more prevalent now. Uh, and so there's a much, there's a higher probability that those beacon hits are going to be more reliable than what you would have seen, you know, seven or eight years ago. Do they triangulate between the three levels of satellite or just are you referring strictly to strictly the medium? To the, to the sat- it's whatever satellite is passing by and over the horizon or going up overhead uh, is what that, that, that beacon is sending a signal to it. Right. Um, so this medium elevation is, is, now is better. The, yeah. And there's more likelihood that that, um, that satellite is going to stay visible to the beacon longer hmm. and more accessible to it. Interesting. Now we have inReach, and um, that's coming up a lot more now. A lot more people hiking with that and the uh, satellite communication. I've always pondered whether or not that is something for the future of search and rescue, actually getting more of these units. And I'm doing some research to see if there are some opportunities there for you know, to a lower subscription cost because it really is prohibitive mm-hmm. if you think about it. But uh, for some of the missions we've been on recently, InReach is fantastic. Yeah, Ty, we get these, uh, it's like a chicken and the egg question, so there's no definitive answer here, but we get this question all the time around like the, the prevalence of technology out in the backcountry. Is that giving people a false sense of confidence and pushing more people that shouldn't be um, pushing it as hard in the backcountry and causing um, search and rescue events? Or is it um, an important safety benefit you know, do, do you have a sense of what what the balance is there? I get that question a lot. Um, I was, yeah, I bet. I had a conversation with a writer a few weeks ago who's doing a piece on uh, cell phones in the backcountry, and he was interviewing me for this. And he said, "What's your? Do you think they should or should not be there?" Um, and I didn't. I, I I told him. I said, "I don't think it matters what I think." Um, it's the reality of the situation is they're here. They're an extension of our bodies now. Um, they're going to be out in the backcountry. So knowing that, what do we do with that? How do we, how, what can be done so that that becomes an effective tool um, to mitigate risk uh, and not be really the crutch that is our first line of defense when we, start to feel that sense of panic or disorientation or trouble. And what I said to him is that if cell phones were not in the backcountry, and stop, jump all over this if, I'm, if I get this wrong. 
if there were not cell phones in the backcountry, I believe that the frequency with which teams were responding into the backcountry to try to locate people would be higher. Because in talking with Fish and Game, while there isn't, as you said, year over year, the, the number of callouts is is pretty consistent. What is increasing by a significant percentage is the number of people who are calling 911, particularly after the sun sets, because they're lost, disoriented, they're panicking, they don't know where they are. Um, they get linked up with a fish and game officer uh, who sits in his, his or her kitchen in the middle of the night, flips open the laptop, the cell carrier has pinged that cell phone for a coordinate, and that fishing game officer, conservation officer, is walking that hiker or small group back to a trailhead, which prevents the need for teams to go out and search in areas that where they may have no idea. So mm-hmm. in some ways, we can be critical of their existence, uh, that we can be quick to rely on them and not problem solve, that we can go out there without having the requisite experience of map and compass and basic navigation skills because we have this tool with us. I would just ask you to think about what would this look like from a search and rescue perspective if if they weren't out there and people weren't able to call and that um, that incident becomes something much worse, uh, much more costly in terms of um, human capital to get out there, uh, the risks associated with that, and the fact that the longer people are out there uh, in the backcountry, the higher the likelihood of injury, hypothermia, getting even more lost than they already are. Yep, you're right. Okay, There are a lot of those calls coming in. And surprisingly, the, the reception is workable enough and they can access the ping and get the location. So it can be a tool in the arsenal. Like we always say, don't make it the only tool. Right, um, right. Because that's when you get in trouble, whether it be, oh, I'll just turn on my cell phone flashlight. No, you need two headlamps, you know, that type of uh, approach. Don't rely on it as your only last piece of gear. Yeah, and Ty, I think we're, we're probably getting to the end of this this episode here, but I did want to ask you, when, when I think of Kate, I think of, I call it the line, and I don't think I ever sort of, it took me a long time to get to the point where I have a reasonable level of confidence to say that my line is pretty well defined and I know when to turn around when I'm in a bad situation. And I think that it it becomes a lot easier to define your line when you've sort of been there, done that, especially, you know, I've hiked Franconia Ridge three or four times. I sort of know what the experience is like. So it's very easy for me to say like, okay, well, I'm not feeling it or the weather conditions might be a little sketchy. I'm going to turn around. But I think when you have people that they they don't know the area or they're much more driven from an achievement perspective, which I think, you know, Kate strikes me as somebody that was very um, driven, probably much more so than myself. But uh, how do you get to the point where you know where your line is? Is yeah. it just simply a matter of experience or is there other things that you can, you can think of to get there? Yeah. That, so when I talk with groups, um, I I always open with this quote by Goethe, who's an author, the dangers of life are infinite, and among them is safety. Um, Hmm. And again, I I think getting outside of our comfort zone, taking on risk uh, in a way that allows us to grow and develop and to build skills and confidence is really, really important. 
You call it a line. I refer to it as the boundary. And we're saying the same thing. There is a point that we reach that exceeds our ability or our experience um, or expertise to handle. And the further we go beyond that boundary or that line, the less likelihood we have of untangling ourselves from the situation, self-rescuing, or of, or of being rescued. And so when I think of Kate, Kate went out there with the best of intentions for all the right reasons to build experience in independence and resilience, but went so far beyond that line, that boundary, that, um, that she couldn't save herself and she, and she couldn't be saved. Um, and so I think, how do we find that line? Uh, humility, uh, progression, and you know, mentorship, working with people that have these experiences, as you said, you've been across the ridge four or five times, uh, and recognizing that, to me, that there is no hack um, for navigating unpredictable environments. It's we have to work toward these things, and through progression and all of those things I've already mentioned, that's how we. Identify where that line is. And then I think the cool part of all of this becomes how do I how do I get that line further away from me? Because what lies in between that is more experience and more wisdom um, to gain. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think that's, yeah, that's, that is really, really great. And I think the story of Kate is as sad as it is. I think that it's made such an incredible impact on the hiking community and it's brought a lot of awareness to safety and the, the, the significant risk that, that this activity does carry. Excellent. Okay, Mike and Ty, thank you. Uh, we're going to call it a day here on this episode, and we will be back next week for part two of our continued conversation, and we're going to be covering uh, Ty's latest book, The Last Traverse, and also talk about an older essay that's actually becoming a new movie. But before we depart, I do want to tell you that Ty has graciously offered to give away six autographed copies of his books, three Where You'll Find Me and three of The Last Traverse. He's also offered to give one lucky list a virtual book chat for a group as well. So we thought up a couple simple contests for the listeners um, with all the proceeds to benefit the New Hampshire Outdoor Council, the primary nonprofit organization in New Hampshire that supports the volunteer SAR groups. You can participate in one or both of these contests, and here's how they're going to work. For the autographed book raffle, just make a donation of $100 or more to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council on or before New Year's Eve. Send us an image or screenshot confirming your donation to slasherpodcast at gmail.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast at gmail.com. You know, include your name. Uh, if you want, you can tell us your Instagram or Facebook profile or handle, as they say. Uh, and most importantly, that you want to join the book raffle. Uh, six winning entries will be drawn randomly and will receive a single signed book by Ty. The winners will be announced on the Slasher Facebook and Instagram pages on New Year's Day. Following that announcement, the winners will be contacted in order to provide a suitable mailing address so we can get your prize out to you. Now for the virtual book chat for your group with Ty, 
Just make a single monetary donation to the New Hampshire Outdoor Council on or before New Year's Eve. Again, send an image or a screenshot to the same email address, slasherpodcast at gmail.com. Give us your name, Instagram, profile, or Facebook, and most importantly, tell us that you want to join the raffle. So there's only one winner for this virtual book chat for your group, okay? Uh, And that winner will be announced again on the Slasher Facebook and Instagram pages on New Year's Day. And uh, after that, we'll contact you and give you more information. Okay? All right. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words to describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? Seems to me the most common is being unprepared, and I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.